Jedi mind trick of employer brand, well, I guess specifically the EVP, the employer value proposition, is that for the most part, it already exists. If you are an employer brander or you hire an employer brander and they show up or you show up and say, I'm going to invent your employer brand, get rid of that person now. (laughs) Get out of their office. Ask them to leave. They're not there to invent anything. They are there to reveal and then cultivate and then to support and then refine. But they're not there to invent because... When you understand what an employer brand really is, you understand that it has to come from somewhere. And by the way, the answer isn't the consultant's mind. No, don't do that. Uh Uh-uh, try again. It comes from somewhere. So if you think, if I understand where it comes from, I can identify it, I can understand how it is supported already, and I can start to work with it. Which is great, because that's exactly what we're about to talk about today when we get back. Hey, how you doing, James Ellis? Welcome to the Talent Cast, Season 2. This time, um, I don't know, I'm talking more. I don't know, I got nothing. It is the Talent Chooses You audiobook podcast redo 2.0 in 3D, but mostly in 2D, but mostly 1D because I think audio only exists in one dimension. I don't know. Ask a physicist. That's not what I'm here for. Uh, As always, we need to thank recruitmentmarketing.com for for making this whole thing possible. They are the recruitment marketing community. So go sign up and take a look at what's going on there. Going to be doing a couple of one-on-one, not one-on-ones, ask me anything. That's different. Uh, I mean, to you, it might be one-on-one because it'll be you in your office or you in your bedroom and I'll be in my dining room and we'll be one-on-one, but there will be other people listening. I don't know. Anyway, go go to recruitmentmarketing.com and sign up and see when those are. Otherwise, um, you know, without them, this this may not have happened. So I'm thrilled that we could put this together for you, for me, for everybody, et cetera, et cetera. So let's get into where the employer brand comes from. So first posit is that your employer brand already exists. You know, understand that, you know, when you think about things like culture, culture isn't a thing that a leader says, this is our culture. That's, that's, that's not what a culture is. A culture is the things that happen when you put these th- messy objects called human beings in a room or a space or an ecosystem or a situation together, and they evolve a means by which they make decisions and take action. That is a culture. In a lot of ways, your employer brand is kind of the same. Put a bunch of people, you hire them, you pay them money, pay them a lot, pay them a little, I don't know, it doesn't matter. It's not really what this is about. Um, you build some structures around it, things like leadership and HR or people teams, right? You know, we have people who can hire and fire you, people who can invest in you or support you or give you an employee handbook or values and who you hire and who you choose to hire. All this stuff, you put it in a big old pot and you boil it for a while. And I don't mean for very long because it doesn't take long for this to work. You invariably have some sort of employer brand, the, what it's like to work there, right? It's the sum of all the things that all the employer projects and absorbs. It's just this melting pot of ideas. So all your outreach, your news, your social media, your job postings, your reviews, your ratings, your products, your consumer service or customer service, all that stuff, what your leadership does, what your leadership doesn't do, all that stuff, it's already out there in the world, right? You're already posting social media. People are already reviewing you. People are already liking or disliking your products. People are already calling your customer service. Your leader are already doing things. And a lot of that stuff gets documented 
or at least commented upon, and it gets put out on the internet. That's what we're calling the world here, right? You're already selling things. Your salespeople already go do things. Everybody, people interacts with the public. People see reviews left by staff. It's already there. They have to just Google it to find it, no matter how big or small your company is. Now, you may not think you have an employer brand, but you absolutely do. The fact that you haven't invested in clarifying it or amplifying it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And it doesn't mean that it's making a, not making a huge impact on how hard it is to hire people or recruit people. It does, right? Remember a couple of years ago when security escorted, and I use that term loosely, someone from United Flight, like four or five years ago, right? Remember that one? Banged his head pretty good. It gets a couple of seats on his way out. Do you think more people apply to there to work there or fewer? Right? When stuff like that happens, it has an impact. Right? If somebody buys a pair of sneakers and falls in love with them, do you think they're more likely or less likely to respond to a recruiter from that company? When the recruiter outreach shows that the recruiter really researched the prospect, like actually understands what they do and why they're interesting and, and, and smart and, and good at what they do or rather, and wanted to offer something valuable to the prospect before engaging in a deeper conversation, do you think that creates an emotional connection? Or do you think you just spam the, the, the holy hell out of everybody? Look, all of this stuff matters. All of your company's output from every team, depending, doesn't matter whether it's in the core or the bottom line or ancillary to it, blah, blah, blah. It all impacts your brand. When you network, when you tell stories about working there, you are spreading the brand around. Ignoring your employer brand doesn't just make it go away. I mean, it's for some of you, as much as you'd like it to be, <laughs> it doesn't. People still see you. They still learn about you. They make judgments about you. They make decisions about whether to apply or respond to recruiters, no matter what you do. So the question isn't, should I have an employer brand? Because you do. The question in in instead is, how will you decide to shape it? What's your intention with it? What efforts will you put into clarifying it or distilling it or making it clear to people? Or who are the people to whom you need to make it clear? What are you trying to be? And ultimately, why should someone want to work there? That's what it's all about, hokey pokey fans. That's just what you do. You just, you got to understand it's out there. You just got to shape it. It's a little bit like a bonsai tree. I think I've said that before somewhere. It, it, the tree's going to grow. What you do is you snip pieces or water pieces of it or fertilize parts of it or encourage growth or stymie growth here and there. You make choices. Brand's kind of the same thing. So I guess we should ask, what is an employer brand? We've gotten into some definitions before, but let's get into a definition we can actually use, right? It's a well-trod ground to state that the brand isn't the logo, it's not the product, it's not the tagline, it's not the commercial. All of these things are useful and true and they are part of the brand, but the brand is actually none of those things. If a brand was as simple as a logo or a tagline, all you got to do is relaunch a logo and tagline and all your problems are solved. But you got to start the conversation you know, on these kind of rote, trite uh, uh, lines around the logo is not the brand, even though you know, I don't think anybody really thinks that. I hope not. At least certainly nobody listening to this. Hopefully you don't think that. But you have to kind of just check those boxes in order to find a definition of a brand that we can actually do something with. To say that it isn't a logo or a commercial helps us see that the concept of a brand is bigger than a logo and commercial. But then what? If you don't understand what your brand really is, how are you expected to fix it? 
How are you going to keep your wonderfully paying job and the benefits that you enjoy if you don't know how to fix the thing you're assigned to fix? So as we've already discussed, an employer brand is what people think it's like to work for you, right? It's what they anticipate it's like to be there, what the experience is. And the word experience is is (laughs) loaded uh, because it means so many things. But ultimately, when I show up to work and I want to do the work, what's it like? Not just on a day-to-day, like, I'll achieve these tasks, but is my boss going to bug me every 12 seconds? Are they going to be slacking me up the wazoo and and asking me things? Are they going to seem to forget that I exist? Am I going to spend every 20 minutes showing up to yet another all-hands meeting that doesn't seem to mean anything? Is Oh, my goodness. Is this the kind of place where the leader likes to pontificate and my job seems to be to not yawn for an hour before I can go back to work and do the things that matter? Or are we going to work this as a team? Am I expected to be a cowboy or cowgirl? What is expected of me? Ford's employer brand, right, the car company, is what people would expect to be when they join Ford. Do they expect the interview to be friendly or rigorous or something else? Would they expect the onboarding process to be well-designed and comprehensive? Or expect employees to just kind of figure it out after being given kind of a, here's a manual and a videotape message from the CRHRO, right? Videotape, right? That's funny. Um, Do they expect to work in a focused eight to 10 hours a day in a cubicle while wearing a tie? Or is this a sort of place where you have some opportunity to work for remotely or you work the hours you need to work and you can work wherever and you can wear whatever, right? How does this work? A person can't actually know the answers to a lot of those questions for certain, so they make a lot of guesses based on the brand. Understanding where that information lives and creates and supports those suppositions is really kind of part of part of understanding your brand. If you get where those senses are coming, right? If people think, oh, it's a, it must be a really tough place to work, and you ask them how you think that, and they can't really answer you, your job is to figure out where are the data points from which they're absorbing and inferring this idea that it's a tough place to work, because you might think it's not, or maybe you want it to feel like a harder place to work. That's intention. Okay, so overall, we're talking about a pretty soft description. I mean, so if we're gonna wield this tool called employer brand and EVP to evolve our entire hiring model from the ground up, because that's really what you should be doing, let's start with the definition that actually supports your good work. So if your brand is what people think it's like to work for you, let's break down all the pieces that we can change and impact. So first off, we have to assume that the brand is what someone thinks it's like to work here. It's a personal and individual perception. It's not what lots of people think. It's what not what the media says it is. It's not what you say it is. It's what my mom or your mom or your best friend or your cousin Charlie or the person you bumped into on the subway the other day. It's what they think on an individual level. Think of any consumer brand like Cheerios or Nikes. You may love the brand but somebody else may hate it. Some people may see the Toyota Camry as a safe, reliable, efficient, affordable, comfortable sedan, and some people will see it as boring and slow and common. Same car, same brand, but it's perceived differently by two people and thus create two different kinds of feelings about the brand. And I wanna be crystal clear about this. They're both right. There is no true brand. There is no true uh, uh, platonic ideal of what your brand is. It is absorbed, it is understood, it is digested, it is perceived by a single person times uh, 10, 1,000, 100 million, whatever, you know, I don't know what your company is, 
It's individual. In the case of that Camry, and by the way, I used to own a Camry. I loved it. I thought it was a great car. My wife <laughs> hated it. Uh, she was a Mini Cooper person. She was way hipper than I was, right? Let's just go ahead and say it. Uh, and I, I kind of go, what's not to love about a Camry? It's two Barker loungers strapped to a boring and reliable engine. Let's go. That sounds perfect. I want to like darn near fall asleep while driving because I'm so darn cozy. That's, that's a Camry. People who like that like the Camry. People who don't like that, people who want to be seen as hip, people who want a little more maneuverability. They want a little more, I don't know, sexiness. And trust me, Camrys are many things. Sexy is not one of them. Um, they won't like it. Simple as that, right? But people see that car and it's driving around the streets. They see a commercial for it. And some of those commercials for like the Camry had a celebrity voiceover and people have different opinions on how they feel about that celebrity or celebrities in general. Maybe they saw a news story and rated that rated that particular model very highly or a news story that listed them as one of the most common cars to be pulled over by police, which for a while it was possibly because it was one of the most common cars on the road. Maybe they took it for a test drive. Maybe that neighbor they hate, you know, the one who's always leaving their garbage cans out way too late just bought one. They're creating a signing. They're, they're, it's, it's brand understanding by proximity, right? Maybe their boss just bought one and maybe they like their boss and maybe they don't like their boss. Maybe when they Google the car, a cra car crash video is the first search result and it flavors their entire perception, good or bad, right? Maybe the last time they were on a car lot, the salesperson was smarmy as hell and kept pointing them to the Camry for some reason. Huh. Well, how are you feeling about that now, huh? Maybe they heard how rarely they need service, but that the parts can be expensive. Could be true, right? Maybe a Camry bumped their car two years ago. Maybe the person driving that car was a jerk. Maybe they know someone who works for Toyota who raves about the culture and design. Maybe they met somebody in a bar who said they were ugly colors or ugly cars. Maybe, 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 maybe. The list of inputs goes on about forever. It includes the product, the company that they make it and support that product, the sales materials, the process around the product, the news, the word of mouth from people who work at the company, who own the product, who have a perception about the product, search engines, ratings, survey sites, personal experience, yada, 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 yada. All of those inputs, which are valid, true or not, right? True or not, they are valid, they are filtered through a person's mind to create a brand impression, one that is specific to that individual alone. So this suggests that the brand isn't so much as built as it is revealed. People already have perceptions in their mind. Even if they don't know anything about you and the recruiter reaches out or they see a job and they Google you, there you go. The perception is starting to be created. That's where it begins for some of you. For some of you, you're well-known brands and that perception was created long before you took this job. How is that fair, you ask? <laughs> this is not that kind of podcast. We ask what someone thinks about a brand and we get the end result of all those brand impressions, like a big machine that churns perceptions and touch points and experiences into a tiny little piece of information called brand perception. Could be strong, could be weak could be positive, could be negative, but ultimately the brand is already there. And the same is true for the employer brand. 
There are just as many ways that a product or a potential candidate might absorb information about your employer brand as it is for someone to absorb it about the car. Beyond uh, obvious sources of information like the career site and job postings, things you control, or rating sites, which you can't, they can come from the recruiter, from ads that you put out, videos you put out, blog posts, consumer interactions, news, search engines, the interview process itself, this list goes on and on and on as well. All the things the company does, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, fuels the sense of what it might be like to work for your company, which is in turn feeds someone's sense of what the employer brand is to them. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change Podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. So that was a lot, but it's a big idea. And sometimes when I wrestle with this idea, it's helpful to come up with a simple metaphor. And I wish I could take any credit for this one. I heard it on somebody else's podcast. I do not remember where it was. I take zero credit for this. Otherwise, I, and I would name them if I could. But really, a brand perception is a bird's nest. And if you think about it as a bird's nest, you really build your employer brand one straw at a time. So it's all well and good from a philosophical or architectural or, I don't know, even an academic point of view of that's what the brand is. But let's get very specific. Let's get real. Where does the employer brand live? Great question. So your employer brand is the sum of what you project and they absorb. And of course, how they translate what you project. That is, what lands. You can say a hundred things, but what did they hear? And how did they hear it? It's not something you can control because you can only control one half of that equation, the part you project. And frankly, if you look at the employer brand as being the sum of all the touch points and all the things your company puts out, you only have control over a handful of those. So if you try and tell the world that the Camry is a fine sports car and you make commercials announcing it and talking about it and you enter it into sports car races, that's not a term, but I just made it up. If you feed the communications channels with pictures and videos and testimonials about how it's an amazing sports car and all the pictures have their hair blown back and you get famous race car drivers to own them and drive them around. Yeah, you aren't changing minds so much as you're trying to influence them. You're trying to plant this seed that this car, which again, two Barca loungers strapped to a four six cylinder engine that never seems to die, is an exciting ride. It's akin to NASCAR or Formula One. Now, good luck. Because <laughs> to someone who once owned a Camry, they may have never considered the Camry as a sports car and with good reason. And so all those messages that you spent a lot of time and money putting out there get rejected. 
or worse, they are seen as so incongruous to the perception of the brand that they make the listener or viewer think less of the brand. That is to say, they think you're lying. And the second a consumer thinks you're lying, your job just got twice as hard. Candidate, just as much. So this means that as someone tasked with managing the employer brand, not only do you have you not have any control over half the equation, you really only have control over your side. So for all the good work you may be doing building videos and elevating your glass door scores, someone in the marketing team might publish a tone-deaf tweet. And we could come up with lots of examples of that. Someone in customer support is about to enrage someone thinking about applying. <laughs> Whoops. They don't know. They just don't know. They're following their process. They don't they aren't measured by whether or not the customer is happy or whether that customer will eventually apply. That that's not a metric you look at. Your product team's about to announce a new product that has some flaws. Whoops. The news may publish a story that claims that leadership fosters a culture that tolerates sexual harassment. Bum, bum, bum. All these things have a clear impact on how people perceive what it's like to work for you. But, and let us be clear here, you got no control over any of that stuff. None. None. And this is the crux of why only crazy people like you and I do this job is because how on earth can we own an employer brand that is impacted by the entire company and have no actual authority to make any kind of change in most of that stuff? We have all this authority, all this responsibility and none of the authority. <laughs> oh boy. Only crazy people. Indeed. So in a way, the brand is a bird's nest. It gets crafted by whatever materials are lying around. So if the bird is living in a forest, the bird makes a nest out of twigs and grass. Why? Because that's what's sitting around. The bird doesn't manufacture steel beams. The bird doesn't go looking for a cigarette butt because it's useful. They look around and they say, oh, I got me some twigs. I got me some straw. I got me some grass. Great. I'm going to go build a nest with what is right there. That's how birds do. That's what they think about. That's how they build the nest. Take that same bird and stick it in a big city and well, okay, maybe there's a lot fewer twigs, grass, and straw. Maybe it's mostly cigarette butts and coffee stirs and bits of plastic bags and paper. That's what they're going to build the nest around because that's what's around them. That's what's available. Now, if you understand that, you can quickly understand that if you want to change, if you want the bird to change its own nest, you don't just tell the bird to change the nest. You don't go swinging by the zoning board and kind of come up with some blueprints and say, hey, bird, you got to do it like this. Bird doesn't care. Bird builds nest based on what's around it. So if you want to change the nest to the end result, you give the bird different materials, right? If you go around the city and take up all the cigarette butts and get rid of them, or maybe people stop smoking altogether, guess what? No cigarette butts in the bird's nest. Brand management is about focusing on the inputs and worrying a little bit less about the outputs. Now, it's not that you don't worry, don't worry at all about outputs. It's just that, honestly, you can't really fix those things. They're not things you have direct access to. You can influence, but you can't directly change. And I think that's a conversation you and your boss probably have to have because everybody loves to ha answer the question of how do you measure the employer brand? How do you know you're doing a good job? And honestly, you can't always change it. Pity the poor person who worked at Uber 45 years ago when Travis was throwing a hissy fit every 12 seconds and freaking out, right? 
the employer brander was probably doing a great job, but then there's the CEO being a jerk and being very publicly about a jerk, being all being loud about it, right? What can they do? What can, how can they help it? How can they change people's perception? They can't. There's a big old cigarette butt in the nest and they can't get rid of it. So right now, plenty of people are building the bird's nest about you and you haven't been paying attention. You know that when the bad press comes out, it impacts the applications. You know that when a new product gets launched, applications go up. You know that when the leadership makes an unpopular change in policy, referrals drop. You, 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 all this stuff, and I could probably do a really long list of all that stuff, but you're not in charge of any of that stuff. Despite that, their ripple effects make your life a lot easier or make your life a lot harder. So your job is not to change the brand, but to influence it by influencing all the people and teams whose work impacts the brand. It is, to be certain, a massive job. But you need to see the whole picture in order to accomplish the mission. So at this point, we have a graphic and it's kind of a pie chart and it's the first section is passively absorbing the brand. The second section is actively absorbing the brand. And the third section is seeing the brand as an official candidate. And that's really what we're going to cover here. So you got to walk into this understanding that this is a big job that requires spinning about a million plates. That knowledge that you will be trying to influence people well and well above and below your pay grade helps you not kind of freak out. And it honestly keeps you from abdicating the whole thing. You will be spending a lot of time asking people to be more intentional about everything they communicate and everything they do and the things they release and the things they, all that stuff, because they, because you, you get to show them how it impacts and drives the brand, right? You think, how is that possible? Well, okay, customer service. How much easier it is to is it to hire customer service people for that team when everybody who works in customer service is fairly happy and talks about how happy they are? How much harder is it to hire when everybody complains about the fact that they all have to read a script and they have no power to make any change and they can't actually help anybody? And that's starting to get out. Consequently, the hiring manager may actually have some power to change how they do customer service. They just don't see how one leads to the other. That's where you come in. You need them to see that when they leave the coffee stirrer out, it's going to end up in somebody else's bird's nest. So. There are 12 major ways that that bird's nest gets built in, in, in talent's mind. Each one is a massive bucket with dozens of touch points and tactics on its own, but just this kind of idea will help you see the bigger picture without going blind from staring at all the details. So the first five buckets focus on the impressions that are created really before a candidate becomes a candidate, before they're really thinking about potentially changing a job. These are passive information points. They're passively absorbed, right? They create almost a subconscious brand perception that they may not even realize they have until they actively start to consider your brand, right? They may be absorbing information, you know, in these five major buckets for a while, and they don't even notice that they like or don't like your brand until the recruiter with your logo shows up and says, hey, I got something to talk about. And suddenly, oh, wait, I hate that company. And they'd probably go, where did that come from? If they had any kind of, if they were thinking about that, which they probably aren't. So. This means that a lot of the work developing your brand impression and building the bird's nest occurs before talent thinks about looking for a job. So if you focus all your energy building a gorgeous career site, but somebody already dislikes you when they see your logo pop up on a job board, you've lost the game before it started. People 
build your brand impression before they become candidates. So first big bucket, consumer brand. Simple. When someone interacts with your product and services, they begin to create positive or negative brand perceptions. For most businesses, the consumer side will have a far wider reach than anything the employer brand person does. If you sell a million widgets and people like them, that's going to make your job a lot easier than if, you sell, if we sell a million widgets and nobody likes them. Or if you sell 12 widgets and everybody likes them. That's different, right? Look at your net, promoter, your net promoter scores, your Yelp reviews, your Google reviews. That's how you're going to get a sense of what people are saying about your consumer brand and where your employer brand perception might be starting. Second bucket, the news. Not newspapers, because apparently those things don't exist anymore, but the news. And that's a, that's a general news, the news all around the world, right? Not just the nightly news, but all the stuff. So the breast... The, the, the best brands in the world have bad days, and some of those days ended up recorded and broadcast for the world to see. You win an award, and you open up a new office in a new town, and you acquire another company. Yay! Multiple consecutive quarters of growth. Woohoo! Your stock price is going crazy. Excellent! All those things add to positive brand sentiment. But accusations of sexual harassment or fraud or worries about layoffs or recent layoffs or mistreatment of customers or any other newsworthy story will have a negative impact. The news has a much, much bigger megaphone than you ever will, and you can't control it. Third bucket. Let's call this word of mouth or network. That is, what are people talking about? What is the scuttlebutt? What is the, you know, what people say, ultimately. When people think word of mouth, they think one-to-one, -one, right? What does your neighbor tell you? This is more about everybody knows X, everybody knows Y, that sort of thing. So what do people say about you? What do your employees tell their friends about what it's like to work there? When st what stories get spread around organically via informal networks? As any marketer knows, word of mouth advertising is way more valuable than anything you pay for, though you can't control it. And while the reach might be low, the impact is incredibly high. Especially when you consider that if your lead nurse is bad-mouthing your brand, it's mostly being absorbed by other nurses who will see your nurse as far more authentic and credible than anything your marketing team can say. Understanding what your advocates and your people are talking about, huge, 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 huge. Fourth bucket, employer brand marketing. So, things like billboards and posters and digital ads and videos and stories, things that can reach a wide audience that are not specifically targeted to candidates because they're via, either via channels that can't target that way or they're just kind of interesting stories. You may be using them for employer brand, but they're interesting. Like if you did a, an employee spotlight and someone said something really interesting about data science, guess what? More data scientists are going to see that. Most of them aren't looking for a job, but you are now impacting data scientists' perception of your brand so that when they do start to look for a job, you can now be seen as positive. Budgets here are predicated on the fact that these tools can reach passive candidates and encourage them to engage. So don't ignore the channels you have direct control over when looking at your messaging plans. Depending on your spending, the reach might be high, but the impact is going to be low because, you know, it's a commercial and anybody who's ever used commercials knows you got to hit them a bunch of times before that commercial ever sticks. It's expensive. People don't believe commercials, right? It usually works best as a nudge 
to get people to learn, go and try and learn more about you, but it's still there. It's a tool in your tool belt. You should be aware of it. Last bucket, and this is a common refrain, recruiters. Perhaps you know some. When a recruiter does a cold outreach to someone who isn't looking for a job, what's the message they put out there? What's the perception out there? When they reach out, are they saying something interesting? Are they being useful? Are they being positive that broadly aligns and supports your company's brand or your values? Or <laughs> is it the same old, dear first name, click here to learn about a job opportunity that I think you'd be perfect for, that I definitely didn't send to 4,000 people I put a list together for, right? Yeah, that's clearly spam. So one might assume that the reach here for recruiters is low, but the reach is actually cumulative in that sending a spam message today leaves a bad taste in someone's mouth and will keep them from considering your brand for, well, years. So be aware that recruiters matter even to passive candidates, the people they're sourcing. Go get in front of some of those messages, offer to help them rewrite them or talk about some of that process, especially if you see problems. It matters. All right, the second set of buckets, and it's five of them, occur during the job hunt process, right? At this stage, your prospects aren't, aren't just actively seeking an opportunity to apply for, they're actively considering you. People don't hang out in Indeed and Glassdoor for fun. I know they, Indeed and Glassdoor wish they did. They don't. Don't worry about it. They don't. They just don't. They never would. Why would they? Why would I hang out on a site selling cars if I'm never going to buy a car? Why would anybody hang out on a job board if they're not looking for a job? They only visit those sites when they're in the process of looking for and considering a new role. That subconscious perception built passively now makes itself known, right? It suddenly sprouts. It was a seed buried deep in their subconscious and suddenly it matters. If that prospect has clear reasons to dislike your brand, you will not get a chance to influence them. They will literally put shields and walls up to say, I am ignoring you. I'm not paying attention to you. That recruiter, I'm like, nope, nope, no interest, no interest, no, no, no. It's possible to reach those people, but it's going to be a lot more work. And when I say work, I also mean a lot more expensive. So if this perception is weak and bland, yeah, okay, they can see the opportunity and consider it. And this is when the channels you control will come into play. So this is the sixth bucket, search and the web. I, I Honestly, the web, I mean, who, who still uses the term the web anymore? That's, that, that's on old man me. Anyway, at this stage, information is being sought and every touch point is more impactful because they're actively looking for it. It doesn't exist in a vacuum, however. Candidates will search for you knowing something about you, perhaps even having a positive or negative mindset or frame set for them. The smart move here is to be open to is to open an incognito window and search what's it like to work at and then put your company name and see what comes back. That is what people are generally, not perfectly, Google's funny that way, but that's what people are generally seeing when they search for you. And they are searching for you when they're actively interested in you, when they have some reason to be engaged with you. All right. Bucket 7. LinkedIn and digital networking. You can even be regular networking, I don't know. When a candidate gets serious about a potential role or a potential brand, they want information from the inside, not just the marketing stuff, you know, blah, 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 blah. We, we're all used car salesmen at heart, deep down in our heart, even though we don't want to be, even though we don't think of ourselves that way. To the outside world, the stuff we put out there is marketing spin, just, just so you know. So they look at their own networks to see who they know who works there or used to work there. 
This is why treating your alumni positively is so important, right? When we get to the talent funnel in the next section, you're going to realize that these people are impacting your candidate brand perception for years after they leave. So you got to let them leave on the best possible note. The eighth bucket is social media. And yes, that's a pretty broad bucket. And honestly, it, it could go even broader than what I'm defining here. Because we're not talking about just Facebook and Twitter. We're talking about stuff you push out on Glassdoor, your reviews and ratings on you know other sites, comparably, Fairy God Boss, what have you, Power to Fly, what you put on Instagram, what you the stories you push on LinkedIn, the stuff your employees are sharing. Treat these stories as marketing stories so you can set the frame. The reasonable expectation is that a candidate will start looking for the real information behind your posts. And they do that by looking at hashtags, reviews, or photos. So you gotta consider both elements when you're scoring or you know your brand positively or negatively. When you're looking at this stuff, what are you seeing? Is everybody talking positively? Good. Is anybody talking negatively? How do you fix? How do you influence? How do you shape? Because while no one's gonna necessarily see, oh, a bad review, I'm done with this company, that bad review, that bad story sticks. And no one, no company is 100% perfect. That's called a cult and no one wants to join that. And there's plenty of data that says a five-star review on Glassdoor is a bad thing. Just like a five-star review on Amazon is actually a bad thing. Anyway, understand that this is shaping perception. Bucket number nine, events. Now, these days in our COVID world, what's an event? <laughs> you can extend that. It can be in person, it can be virtual, it can be purely via digital channels and platforms, right? Doesn't matter. Beyond recruiting events, this is any time the candidate has a chance to engage socially with your company. Whether it's an open house or an educational event or a recruiting party, whatever. In a digital world, it means being available to candidates if they choose to seek you out. Face-to-face -face means the impact is way high, but the reach is limited because there's only so many people you can touch, right? There's so many people you engage with. So bear that in mind. Last bucket for this section, recruiters. Hey, look, they're back. Again? Yeah, absolutely. So to a passive candidate, recruiters are annoying salespeople. I feel like I've made that pretty plain. Uh, but to an active candidate, recruiters are the most important connection to the company most people have. Most people don't know people inside your company. They would like to, but they don't. The recruiter is kind of that conduit. The recruiter is the source of information and news and framing and structure about the job, right? They can say, oh, this is a matrix organization or, oh, this is super hierarchical or, oh, this job is going to sit in this corner that no one's ever going to talk to them or, oh, you're in the middle of a highway, right? Whatever it is. Um, recruiters should be sharing appropriate content and they should be framing it for the candidates so they understand this is what this content should be saying to them. Keeping a lead warm until everything lines up, that's you know just part of the job. They're there to build relationships. And we talked about relationships earlier. Recruiters who see their job not as building relationships are telling candidates, hey, I only care about you as a means of hitting my numbers. I don't actually care about you as a human being in any way, shape, or form. Which, by the way, the candidate can tell. Let's not be, let's not kid ourselves. So be aware of all your exit interview surveys. Keep an eye on them. See what how the candidates are engaging with recruiters and how they feel about them. Yes, that puts you in a position of being uh, narc. Nah, that's not the right word. Trust me, the TA leadership already sees those, but you can use them to say, okay, there are people for whom I don't need to worry about, and there are people I do. All right. 
final major section, just two buckets in this one. But these occur during the interview process. Some call this the candidate experience stage. I'll allow it, sure, that's great. But ultimately, this is where the candidate gets so much firsthand information, right? This is how they make decisions. If they'd already made a decision, they wouldn't show up to the interview, right? If they already said, ugh, no, no way, they never would have shown up. So what they're doing is walking in eyes wide open. They are absorbing all sorts of information. They are like vacuums, sucking it all up, right? This is what it's all about. First of this bucket of two here is recruiter and the recruiting process. I know, right? It's fascinating how the role of the recruiter evolves over the course of this journey. It's almost like they're the most important part. Don't tell them I said that, but yeah, they could be. So taking the role of the facilitator, the confidant, the supporter, it matters. They're the ones who get to find out what the candidate might be thinking or worried about, what the questions are they're asking. They see the bigger picture and are there mostly, depending on the system, to advocate for that candidate, to make sure that the hiring manager gets the information about the candidate they need to make a real decision, right? You do, the hiring manager does not want to say, oh, I, didn't, I don't want them, they don't know anything about C++, when it's just because they forgot to ask and the candidate forgot to put on the resume because they have five other programming languages there. Recruiters the one to say, actually, they do know this stuff. We, just, we can go do a follow-up and double check. Right? So at this stage, the recruiter is incentivized to convert the candidate into a hire, so they're going to be more willing to share information to ensure that the candidate has the details they need to nail the interview, right? to, to give uh, the right information out, the things that the hiring manager cares about, so that the hiring manager can make an informed decision. Also, so the candidate can make an informed decision. Simple as that. Everybody loves a good informed decision. This means that the recruiter has to be on their game. They got to respond quickly. They got to share information. They got to coordinate steps. They got to make sure the candidate feels appreciated and valued through the entire, let's call it, arduous process of offer and negotiation. Yes, this is probably the nicest thing I've ever written about recruiters, but I mean every single word of it. They do amazing work. They do amazing work through the entire process, but this is the moment they shine. Last bucket, 12 hiring manager and interview. This step is most crucial and probably the least invested in. Whoops. Think about it though. For every candidate the hiring manager meets, there's like 50, 100, maybe more applications that the recruiter had to kind of filter through, sort through, screen, drive, all this stuff. And that makes this candidate insanely valuable to all parties involved. Now, put that insanely valuable candidate in front of someone who, I don't know, has never taken interview training who has a busy day job and has nothing to do with interviewing, is pulled in lots of different directions at any given second. And you have to expect them to make a positive impression on this incredibly valuable candidate. On top of that, in my experience, most hiring managers have no idea how insane and tight the talent market is. They take a real old school, I have a job, so I have the power kind of position and turn candidates off, right? Just that sense of arrogance doesn't play, just doesn't play for most people. Your mileage will vary. And gosh, I hope that last one doesn't really apply to you as much. But the last thing to tell every hiring manager as they walk into the interview room is to turn their phone off and engage with a candidate like they were a customer. Just that little bit of information, just that kind of nudge can increase your offer conversion rate significantly. All right, that was a, a meany big section. But I've been talking about bird's nest for a while. Um, hope 
you know, maybe it's the first time you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. There's a lot of material. If you Google employer brand bird nest, there's some other articles I might have written out there. Uh, maybe even another podcast, possible, uh, that I put out there. I can't remember anymore. Too many podcast episodes. Uh, if this has been the stuff that's been useful to you, go ahead and sign up for my newsletter. It's free every week just for employer branders. You can either Google employer brand headlines or go to employerbrandheadlines.substack.com or just go to employerbrand.news and the sign-up's right there. Thanks so much again to recruitmentmarketing.com for sponsoring this thing. Can't wait to talk to you next week when we talk about where employer brands, where those perceptions come from. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll talk to you later. Bye. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.